Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Funky, Funky Writers Show is now in the air, spotlighted on BadRedheadMedia.com as a top author podcast on the web today and called a total blast of a show for writers. My name is Robert Batista, and you may ask, why is the Funky Writers Show so terrific? Because I'm a writer, just like my guests, and know that words are the breath of life. Connect with the show on the exciting Twitter page by going to at the Funky Writer. I certainly had a great deal of study to do. I've read and read and read over the years and tried to pay attention to how various authors make various things work. I took writing workshop courses in undergrad, went back to lit degree, studied hard during my MFA, and sought the advice of readers and writers whenever I could. However, I can't remember ever making a decision to be a writer. These are the candid words of today's guest, author David S. Atkinson. Welcome to the Funky Writers Show, David Atkinson. Thank you, Robert. Great to be here. Hey, finally, it's great. Uh, David, I know you're a patent attorney at your day job, and writing is what I would think for you a side career. But when you say that you can't remember ever making a decision to be a writer, what does this actually mean to you in the context that you actually write and you write well? Well, I, I, uh, I just I remember being like, you know, six or seven and writing short stories, you know, writing, trying to write poems. It just always seemed like something that people did. My, my parents, you know, were, were big readers. My parents, you know, wrote some themselves, uh, my dad in particular. And it just, it, it never seemed like something you decided to do. It just seemed like something people did. So 
what is it about the written word, as you said, poetry and prose and the telling of stories that attracted you to make this such a major part of your life and who you are? Well, I, I think it's just, you know, my my fascination with, uh, with uh, the stories other people told. And, you know, at some point, you know, reading enough, you, you want to tell your own stories. You get an idea in your head for a story you haven't read yet. And, you know, you want to make that story come out and let other people read it. I know you've written quite a few short stories. Was this a sort of practice in working your way up to the novels, or did you just love writing shorties? Uh, I I like writing uh, writing short pieces, and you know, they to some extent I think you have to write some short pieces and get the fundamentals down before you can do a novel. But I think short stories are an end in and of themselves. I, I don't think they necessarily lead towards a novel. That uh, I like both forms. And I think both forms have things they're good at, and yeah, that you having written novels, I you know I go back to short stories. It just kind of depends on the need of the piece, as opposed to you know anything else. That I I I work with uh, with both. That uh, you know my first Bones Buried in the Dirt was was kind of a mixture between the two, was novel in short story form, and I felt that was you know particularly suited to because it was a child narrator piece. And I thought that, that really worked for how children experience the world. Uh, Garden of Good and Evil Pancakes was a novel, but you know, then not quite stories, uh, not quite so stories. Here I am back with short stories again. And in January, my second novel will be coming out, uh, uh, Apocalypse, all the time, and back to novels again. Yes, and you seem to be extremely comfortable writing short stories. And the thing about short stories is that uh, you have to give them the best bang for the buck, so to speak, where everything has to be tight, concise, and you don't have that much time to com- to tell the story. You have to do it very quickly and hit them hard, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. And I've I've been doing a lot of flash recently, which – even more so because, you know, short story, you typically get, you know, maybe between 2,000 and 6,000 words. And you know, the right. flash pieces I've been writing, you get like 400, you know, that, and some people do flash in as little as like 50 words, uh, you know, like blinking, they, they specialize in 50 word stories. And it's, you know, you, you really got to get in there fast. Yeah. I did a micro story or what I call a micro story, uh, three pages. And My Baby Has No Name, one of the best pieces I've ever written. You know, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I understand loud and clear. And I love the short story myself also. Um, I want to talk about your book, David, as you just mentioned, Bones Buried in the Dirt, which I am completely intrigued about. Let's start with the captivating title. Why did you call it this? Uh, well, it, it kind of goes back to the the idea for for the, the the doing a novel in story form like that. That I had started thinking about those kind of moments her in uh, in childhood that never get completely absorbed uh, in your consciousness later on. I, I think of one in particular. I was maybe about seven, and a family friend had given me a Christmas present, and I had opened it. 
and it was one of these little cars that you insert a plastic strip in and pull it out, and it causes the wheels to go. Uh, but it was the cheaper version. Uh, it's the, the, the version everybody wanted had a slanted end, so it was real easy to stick in the, the plastic strip. And this one had a flat end, and so it was much harder <laughs> to bunch up all the time. And before I even thought about it, I'm like, oh, it's the cheap one. And everybody laughed because I'm seven, but my parents were shocked. And I, it, it, every once in a while, whenever there's like an institute, uh, instance for gratitude, my brain will be like, hey, do you remember that time you were a little prick? And it's just, you cringe. And this is like, you know, this is like 32 years later now. And just thinking of those kind of moments, those are, those are the kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of bones buried in the consciousness that, and they end up kind of forming a framework for kind of who you are later on. And so I started thinking about that and I started writing kind of these moments uh, in, a, in a child's life that would be these kind of pivotal, undigested moments. And I didn't want to bring it forward into adulthood because a lot of those child narrator pieces are, you know, adults looking back. I wanted to just kind of give those fragments and keep the child at that age so you kind of develop a sonar picture of what, who this child is going to become as an adult without actually seeing them as an adult looking back to explain. It's the stories of Peter at ages 4 through 12. Very rare do we find an adult story where the protagonist is so young and formative. Why did you decide to tell the story of a boy at this stage of his life? I mean, you just mentioned some of the things. Can you elaborate a little more? Uh, Certainly. uh, Well, it it had come from one story I had worked on uh, years before, and you know, you know, kind of working in those ideas of wanting to form uh, this, this picture of pivotal moments in this character's life that we're going to form who the person becomes later. Uh, you know, that, that one story I had written kind of suggested others. And so I, I wanted to see if I could do kind of a whole story arc out of short stories, out of just those isolated moments and, uh, and be able to kind of give a picture of who this person would be without actually presenting them as a fully formed adult. See if I could make that picture uh, emerge from those stories. Uh, and that there's, there's a few, uh, you know, out there where they, where they have uh, an adult, you know, adult intended audience for a child narrator. I mean, you have like to kill a mockingbird, uh, the house on mango street. There's some out there. Uh, I, I, I am very intrigued, as I said, about this premise of Peter. Um, and I want to re- read a, a blurb, and I think you touched on some of it, but I want to go deeper into this. The blurb for this book says, The stories focus on the moments in childhood that get buried in the mind but are never fully absorbed. Unlike most coming-of-age tales, Peter is never brought forward into adulthood. Rather, though, the stories are reflective. The distance is short. Thus, instead of how an adult be became who they are the result is becoming a sonar picture of the person peter will be so david i interpret this to mean instead of writing a story of an adult in flashback you write it in real time as it is happening and peter's heart and mind are shaped right at those moments and the reader sees it exactly as it happens before he grows older and is able to process and analyze the past events through his memory. Would you agree? 
Oh, definitely, definitely. I wanted kind of a uh, a sunrise versus sunset kind of focus, uh, you know, a forward projection as opposed to a rear projection. And I think it colors because yeah, we, you know, as as time goes on, we we view things so differently because we process everything we've seen in light of everything else we've seen. And, you know, to, to get just those moments instead of those moments filtered through 40, 50 years since then, you, you kind of have to have the character at that time period, you know, that there has to be a small amount of reflection, but, you know, not changing who the person essentially is who's doing the reflecting. Yeah, I like what you said, sunrise as opposed to sunset. In other words, in, in real sight as opposed to hindsight. Uh, yeah, I understand that completely. One Amazon five-star review by Victoria McCullough states in part, I like a style like Atkinson's. Bones buried in the dirt may just be his Salinger moves for a young writer. With many of us, young love is young love. I think of it as self-explanatory at times, but in the way David tells us about girls and boys, we are moved and ponder much with the criterion of other books that have done this kind of thing. I would say David rates high on the list for a must-read for those who would have a wish to get nostalgic and examine young life and the joys of it. Wow. With that review, it looks like you nailed it and did the job you set out to do. Hey, David? Oh, yeah. That was, that was, I, I still blush at that review. That's a wonder. I love that review. Let's talk about the publishing process. A lot of writers and up-and-coming writers who listen to this show always want to know how authors get published. Did you go through the mainstream, independent, or did you self-publish? Uh, this is independent. All three of my books uh, have been uh, independents that, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to, you know, wander around in a lot of writer circles, a lot of discussion circles. And, and I think, I think that's important to, you know, to have relationships with presses. Uh, it, it won't help you if the writing isn't, but if it's there, you know, if, if they have, uh, you know, if they know who you are, you know, not just, you know, as a writer, but as a person, uh, they know, you know, what it is you're doing. They're going to, you're going to get that attention when, when you submit that you might not otherwise get. And with as many, I mean, you know, even the small presses can have thousands of submissions a year, even the smallest. Right. And, yep. you know, if, if they have any idea when they pick it up that it's going to be something they actually want to read, you, you stand so much more chance of actually getting it read uh, that like my most recent, not quite so stories. I had been at uh, a, a reading for a, a local author that I follow heavily, uh, Linda Jaffe Hull. And yeah, I've been to a lot of her readings and, and so, you know, we get to talking at them and at her most recent uh, release uh, for Frog Kisses, she introduced me to her publisher because, you know, since we've been talking, she had read some of my short pieces online and she introduced me to her publisher and whispers to me aside, you need to send her something. And so I had, I had talked to her because, you know, what I had available uh, wasn't actually what the press's guidelines were looking for. They weren't looking for short story collections, but I talked to her about it, you know, having met her, having talked to her, and I told her what the project was, and she got very excited and said, send it in. 
And, you know, if, if you don't have those kind of, you know, if, if you don't get out there and talk to presses and interact with the presses, you, I, it may not have happened. And so, you know, once they actually read the book, they loved it and they wanted, they definitely wanted to go forward and they actually added short story collections to things that they were looking for to publish. Linda was a guest on the Funky Writers Show last year, and uh, it was a great, great show. Uh, David, you have graciously agreed to read from one of your works for us. Can you set up the piece before you read it? Oh, sure. This is uh, this is uh, from Not Quite So Stories. Uh, uh, it's one of the shorter pieces from that collection. It was originally published in Thrice Fiction. I don't think it really needs a whole lot of setup. I think the uh, I think it reads best uh, if I just go right into it. It's uh, titled "Sense of Wonder Rhymes with Orange." Okay. Would you like me to Would you like me to start? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. The blonde man in the wrinkled Oxford shirt dashed across the tile of the elevator lobby. Hurrying, his hands juggled a laptop satchel, a dry and folded umbrella, and a lumpy plastic grocery bag. Lunching for the elevator button before managing to stop, the sole of his cheap dress shoe slid out from under him and he slipped quickly and clumsily to the floor. An orange popped out of the grocery bag and rolled away as he hit. At first, the young man struggled to get up and catch the orange, but he stopped and watched as it proceeded up a wheelchair ramp next to a small set of stairs. It went all the way up the ramp and came to a rest just over the top. Huh, the young man mumbled, propped up in his side by his left elbow. That was weird. Goodness, are you all right? An older, frumpy woman, whitening brown hair heaped in a massive bun, waddled into the lobby. The squatty heels of her thick clogs clacked on the shiny tiles as she shambled over, bearing a cardboard filing box. Yeah, he said, glancing back at the orange. I mean, yes, I'm fine, thanks. I just slipped. He heaved himself up off the floor and dusted himself off. You have to be more careful, she collected, seeing that he wasn't hurt. Shifting the box onto a good-sized hip, she went on. These floors are slick when they've been waxed. Did you see that? He pointed at the orange. He walked over, grabbed the offending orb, and held it up. It ran up. Must have missed that. All I saw was you on the floor, she smiled. Maybe it was from just how hard you hit. No, I didn't hit that hard, he insisted. As if for emphasis, he dropped the orange to the tile. The orange hit with a thud sound and stopped. Then, slowly, it began to roll. The young man in the front watched silently as it methodically moved its way across the floor, back to the same spot from where the young man had just fetched it. Told you. Well, the older woman exclaimed, setting the file box down. There's something you don't see every day. The young man ran and grabbed the orange again. He stopped and looked carefully around the floor in the ramp. Then he held up the orange and examined it as well. Maybe the floor isn't even, she suggested, placing a hand on her cheek. Maybe it just looks uphill when it really isn't, an optical illusion. Nope, the young man bent down and scanned where the ramp met the rest of the floor. It runs uphill, all right. The woman pursed her lips and put her hands on her sides. They both stood and regarded the floor. The young man rolled the orange around in his hand. Squeaking wheels caused them both to glance up as a mustached delivery man in coveralls pushed a hand truck loaded with packages into the lobby. He nodded at each of them in turn, tipping an imaginary cap, and reached for the elevator button. Smiling at the woman, the young man raised the orange high into the air and let go. As it dropped, the delivery man raised an eyebrow. The older woman and younger man looked back and then watched as the delivery man's gaze turned to watch the orange work its way up the wheelchair ramp. 
Once the orange stopped, the delivery man exhaled sharply. Now that's a neat trick. How'd you get it to do that? The young man shrugged. We didn't do anything. It's doing it on its own. The woman nodded in agreement. You don't say, the delivery man tilted the hand truck upright. All by itself? Do it again, the older woman urged excitedly. Show him. Eagerly, the young man obeyed. The woman and the delivery man stared as the young man grabbed the orange and plopped it in the same spot. Predictably, the orange again came to the stop at the top of the ramp. All three clapped. What's making it do that? The delivery man asked no one in particular as he ran his fingers through his mustache. I can't figure it out, the young man replied. I'm stumped. He turned to the woman, but she just shrugged her shoulders and laughed. Suppose you put something in the way, the delivery man suggested, so it can't go. What do you think will happen then? The woman and the young man looked at each other, but neither answered. The woman pointed at her file box, and the young man pushed it over in front of the ramp. Then they all held their breath as the young man dropped the orange again. Sure enough, the orange began to move along the exact same path as the other times. However, when it reached the file box, it stopped. Aw, the young man and delivery men sighed in unison. Wait, the woman cried, look. Very slowly, the orange moved forward. The file box began to move as well, propelled by the orange. Though not as fast as before, the orange puts the file box to the top of the wheelchair ramp. Then, for no more apparent reason than for any of the other times, it stopped again. Yeah, the delivery man shouted, look at that. Suddenly, a little surly man in an immaculately pressed pinstripe suit stormed into the lobby. His black hair was combed back in a wave puffed several inches high on his head. What the hell are you people doing, he demanded gruffly. His, his, his pointer finger jabbed sharply at the elevator button. It's this orange, the young man excitedly ex- explained. Every time we drop it, this thing goes uphill. We can't figure it out. It's amazing. Sure is, the delivery man chimed in. It can't be doing it, but it is. Damn this thing. Even push that box along with it. So what? The elevator doors opened and the angry little man charged inside. He spun around and just before the elevator doors closed, demanded, Don't you people have jobs to go to? For a moment, the three stood in place. They sheepishly glanced around at each other. The young man shuffled his feet. The delivery man cleared his throat. Well then, the older woman finally remarked, adjusting her bun. She pressed the call button, hefted her file box. The delivery man tilted the hand truck and started pushing it towards the elevators. The young man retrieved the orange and stuffed it back into the grocery bag. When the elevator doors opened, they went inside. Hey, very good, very good. Thank you so much Thank for you. that, David. I enjoy that a lot. Um, let's talk about David S. Atkinson, the person. Where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Oh, my childhood was uh, was pretty normal. I uh, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, okay. mainly in the, the Dundee neighborhood for the, uh, the early part of my life. Uh, uh, my dad was uh, a disabled veteran. Uh, my mom was a uh, was a nurse. Uh, my mom had some breathing issues, and we moved out to the West Coast for a year. Uh, didn't really help out there, so we moved back and spent the better part of uh, the better part of thirty years of my life in Nebraska. And came out to Denver in two thousand eight for uh, business opportunities. A lot more patent stuff going on out here, and uh, that's that's kind of where I am from there. What were some of the books and authors that inspired you in your youth? Oh, there's there's been so many that uh, my parents got me interested early on in like uh, you know Hemingway, uh, uh, Steinbeck, 
I, very big. I, I love, uh, I love, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee, uh, you know, huge fan of Sandra Cisneros' work. Uh, that yeah, I, I'm not sure I could have done Bones Buried in the Dirt without having read House on Mango Street. Uh, okay. It's, it's, you know, throughout the year, you know, more recently I got into, you know, some more of the absurdist people uh, like Edgar Carrot, Amelia Gray, uh, some of Hurakai Murakami's work, George Saunders, Amy Bender. But I, I read all over the place. Uh, you know, I'll read, you know, 19th century French literature. I'll read modern stuff. I probably read about 200 to 300 books a year. Wow. Yeah, Steinbeck was one of my favorites when I was coming up also. I'm curious, um, did you get to read Harper Lee's last book before she passed away, the sequel to Mockingbird? Uh, Do you mean the uh, Ghost Set of Watchmen? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I read it. You know, I... I just didn't think uh, a huge amount of it that I thought the themes were very sophisticated, but I thought the book itself didn't really end up exploring them very much. It, uh, it seemed, it, it seemed kind of shallow to me on the, on the actual writing, but I, I mean, I had such high expectations coming in. Yes. Uh, that seems to be the, uh, general consensus um david talk to us a little more about um the genesis uh and 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 the compilations of not quite so stories it looks like that was a real labor of love for you oh yeah this yeah the uh, technically this was the uh the longest it's taken me to put something together that uh the the original story that I had that kind of gave rise to Bones Buried in the Dirt uh, was was originally written back in 2008, and I didn't start writing Bones Buried in the Dirt, uh, excuse me, 1998, and I didn't start writing Bones Buried in the Dirt until about 2008. But once right. I actually started writing it, it only took me about two and a half years to put that all together. Uh, the first of these stories uh, I started writing back in like 2005, 2006, and I've been consistently working on this since then. Uh, it's just that, you know, I, I kind of have to wait for a, a new story idea and keep working at it consistently for like 10 years. Because if I tried to sit down and deliberately uh, force one, it just end up looking like it, it either just end up being kind of a gimmicky piece that didn't work or it end up looking almost identical to something I already had. And I really wanted a lot of different kind of stories that went with this theme without just being, you know, minor note variations. So it, it took a lot. And, you know, I went, you know, the, the inspirations would come from just tons of different places. Uh, right. Like this, uh, the story I just read actually goes back to uh, uh, some sort of curiosity tourist attraction that I never actually got to go to. Uh, my parents used to take a lot of drives out to the Southwest, uh, and you know, we'd we'd oftentimes go through the Dakotas, going to the Southwest from Nebraska, kind of a loop route. And there was this uh, there was this brochure for what was supposed to be an illusion house, where like things rolled uphill, and and it was just a minor little roadside stop, and it was just it was just a brochure, and I never succeeded in talking my parents to going there. 
but you know the 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 idea kind of fascinated me even at the same time I knew it was just going to be some cheap trick that you know it looks like it's uphill <laughs> and it's not and, you yeah. know, I knew it so I didn't even push that hard cuz I but it was you know that that's you know you're remembering this you know like you know 30 years later it's you know just kind of you know playing on the well what if it had been real and the different attitudes towards that kind of thing that you know you have the you know the number of those people in that story are very their you know life stops and this is a thing of wonder and they're you know they're messing with it they're playing with it it's it's happy it's wonderful and then somebody who even if it's real just doesn't care it just tries to crowd all the wonder out of life to keep up with the routine and yeah so it kind of kind of wrapped up and, and each each of the stories has a different you know, you know some of them came up you know from a realistic story side and then something ended up turning weird while I was writing it uh, some I started from the weird thing and worked outward each one was different I'd like to talk about something that to me is very important in being a successful author that is marketing and building an audience for your writing. David, how have you handled this aspect of the process? Well, I've done a lot of things that, uh, you know, well, I mean, I think you do everything you can that, uh, I mean, you've got to get work out there in a lot of different places. Uh, you know, I think, I think some people can get, they can get segmented into only considering like one kind of literary journal and right. they, they, you know, they're, they can, you can kind of limit themselves. So you have to kind of try to, you know, break away into different groups because you get different people to see your stuff and, you know, you need to be out there looking at what other people are writing, talking about it with people, because again, that's another area where people come to know who you are and might get curious about your writing that, you know, I blog regularly uh, I, I've got I co-host a, a book blog, eleven and a half years of books. Uh, there, yeah, I do a ton of book reviews uh, for you know places like the Lit Pub. Uh, did did some for Pank for a while. Just there's there's no end of the things you can be doing to get out there in front of different people as a writer, and everything you can think of is just another good thing to do uh, with this book did a blog tour, had never done that before. So lots of guest posts, uh, lots of things like that. There's just, there's so many things out there to do. And, you know, as the, as the reading market has, you know, changed so much over the last 20 years, you just, you seek new ways to get in front of people. Let's talk social media. I know you're on Twitter and such of the social media platforms which one do you feel is the most beneficial for your brand and which in your estimation is best for authors or does each platform offer its own special compensations? I think each platform has got its, its unique advantages to what it can do. And I think it depends on the creativity of the author for coming up with something useful to do with it. Right. Uh, I, I use Facebook quite a bit. Uh, you know, I've got author pages up on there. There's a number of groups that I participate in uh, with other writers and readers. 
in in across various uh, groups that you know more literary, more bizarro, uh, science fiction, fantasy. Uh, but I, I use Twitter quite a bit, uh, you know, because I use both of them to kind of uh, I, I kind of use all the different ones to kind of cycle around. That you know, my when I when a blog publishes, it posts on Facebook, it posts on uh, Twitter, posts on Goodreads, and I you know each one kind of reaches a different audience. But right. you know that Facebook it tends to it tends to be the people you've already been connected with, and you you grow that. But Twitter, I think, is a lot more accessible to people who don't already you know, who aren't already in your circle. So it's yeah, there's there's things you can use each. You get your know, Twitter, you only get the quick little bites, but peop you know, more people will see those quick little bites. Right. Uh, Facebook, you know, a lot more for growing a community that you've got more established connections with. It's uh, yeah, I'm not on Instagram much. That's that's one I'm not. But uh, yeah, I, I I try to keep you know balance between. Uh, you know, staying on a lot of different ones in a way that's useful on each, while still not spending so much time on them that I'm not writing anymore. <laughs> it's a juggling act. Really exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. In closing, what's next for David S. Atkinson? I know you're working on the new piece. Um, what other irons do you have in the fire coming up? Oh well, I've uh, I've got uh, you know apocalypse all the time. Uh, the uh, the novel about uh, a character sick of the fact that the apocalypse happens once a week and has to figure out what to do about it. That's coming out in January. Uh, I've got uh, there's a, a press that is that I uh, I'm interacting with that's looking at potentially opening up kind of a uh, a fandom series of books, you know, nonfiction. They want to do something interesting on that. And I was working on something for them involving uh, some various kinds of personal essay and the original Legend of Zelda game. Uh, and most recently, I've been working on these very, very surreal, humorous flash fiction pieces, uh, all about you know 400, 500 words. And right. uh, if I can keep it up, I'm hoping to uh, put a collection together of that, uh, tentatively titled uh, "Roses Are Red." Violets are stealing spare change from my pockets while I sleep. <laughs> David, give out any contact information, how people can follow you, uh, and, and any other contact info you'd like. Well, certainly. Uh, my writing website is davidsatkinsonwriting.com. Uh, that's A-T-K-I-N-S-O-N. And that's got links to my Facebook author page, got links to my Twitter, it's got links to the blog, which uh, the the blog is you know, David S. Atkinson, that WordPress, uh, writing at WordPress.com. Uh, my Twitter is uh, David S. Atkinson underscore. Uh, but if you, yeah, I try to, I, I try to keep the links on each of them. So if you find one, if you find me somewhere, you should be able to end up finding me anywhere you like. This has been the Funky Writer Show with me, Robert Batista. I'm at, at author R. Batista on Twitter. Look for my free short stories, Carmela's Dream and My Baby Has No Name on Smashwords.com. My guest has been the author, David S. Atkinson. And make sure you visit his website, David S. Atkinson on writing. 
www.thebookofdavidshow.com and feast your soul. Thank you so much, David, for being a guest on the Funky Writer Show. Thank you, Robert. It's been excellent. Have a great day. Bye now. You too. It's wonderful. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.